are not in college, uh, whether that's college age and not in college, or graduated, or you know, past college age, whatever that is. Uh, we're going to have at least two different groups this next semester. One, Leslie's going to lead uh, on Knowing God, which is coming from J.I. Packer. And J.I. Packer's a really neat guy. He's very, very old now. Um, but um, he's a, really a theologian, probably one of the more influential theologians of the last century. And in Knowing God, he writes in really clear language about stuff that's really high-minded and makes sense of a lot of stuff that if you're not one of those people that really likes studying theology, which I would say is most of us, um, then you really would love to read, even if you're not going to be a part of that class. And so that class is going to probably meet weekly, and it's going to um, be um, just kind of a class exploring our relationship with God in really practical ways. I'm also going to teach a class. It's probably going to meet every other week, and it's going to be a little bit more academic. Um, And it's going to be God among other gods, which is kind of what I'm preaching on next week. And it basically just explores how the God of Christianity is both similar and different from the God of other major world religions. And we'll cover probably four major world religions, uh, at least in that time period of that semester. And so just be thinking about that. There'll probably be different nights for those of you who uh, you know have scheduling conflicts and things like that. We may have another class mixed in there, too. We'll see uh, what happens. Okay? Yeah, but that's going to be this upcoming semester, and uh, I'm excited about that. I think that's going to be really... Uh, Really great. Questions about that, or is that pretty clear? Yeah? That's what we're going to do for small groups. So we'll meet all together in our kind of big group deal uh, for those, again, who aren't in college at the beginning and maybe middle and end of the semester, but we won't have kind of like an every other night type thing and all that confusing stuff. If you've just recently graduated and you don't know what's going on, just talk to either myself, Leslie, or one of our weird people who uh, call, call themselves... Uh, the chulas, so uh, you can uh, you can talk to them. We want to explore what that is. Chulas, what did you say to me? Yeah, that's right. Um, all right, so uh, this is part two of "Is God an Angry God?" Um, and uh, you know, I'm not going to do too much of a review of last week, although I will do some. If you want to go back and listen to that, we put all of our sermons online, so you're welcome to listen through that, think through it. Um, I'm also going to give you another homework assignment for this week. Not so much for preparation for next week as much as just rethinking what we talked about uh, today. So, is God an angry God? Uh, This is part two. Okay, I mentioned three particular stories. Uh, Actually, I think I did five last time, but as I've narrowed them down, I've realized it's really primarily three stories that give us a lot of trouble as Christians. Okay? And those three stories are the Joshua 6 through 9, where Jericho and I are both destroyed completely, and then somewhere in the middle of there, Achan and his family is destroyed for keeping some of the devoted things. Uh, Then there's Numbers 21 slash Deuteronomy 3. Numbers and Deuteronomy have a lot of overlap. They basically tell the same story, kind of like Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, actually. So that's Numbers 21, Deuteronomy 3, where these kings, Og and Sihon, I don't even know, and all of their 60 cities are completely destroyed. Okay? And then the third one is 1 Samuel 15, uh, where uh, Agag, King Agag, uh, is killed. Now, um, the other two stories you can kind of read on your own. One is sort of like, a, the way that I lump these in, and you can do this however you want when you want to read back through these stories, particularly if you're interested in studying it is I have like a list of the weird war stories, okay? The ones where just weird things are happening. I don't even know how to explain some of them. Like, some people die because they can't pronounce Sibboleth, and you're like, what? Like, what is that? How could that possibly be? That seems so arbitrary. 
Uh, and then the stories where it seems like God intentionally um, de- uh, destroys women and children. And there's really only three of those that I can find in Scripture that are intentionally that language is being used. And one of the things I told you last time, which is something that you might want to look into, particularly if you're kind of academically interested in this, is the word sherem or cherem. And it's the idea of, uh, of a holy war where God is utterly destroying uh, things, which really is a technical term in Hebrew that means devoting things to himself. So like, for instance, uh, when Saul, the first you know, king of Israel, gets booted from his post of king, what happens is, uh, what? He decides, and this is in 1 Samuel 14 and 15, to take some of the plunder and leave King Agag alive so that he can boast about, you know, all the things that he's done. Well, God said those things were supposed to be utterly devoted to him, and then they stole it, and then Israel, uh, you know, got into some trouble as a result of that, and lost some wars and things like that. Now, that whole term sometimes means people are destroyed, and in fact, the three verses that we'll read today, for well, as far as we know, everyone is destroyed. But the majority of the time when that word is used, things are just given over or devoted to God. They're not just technically destroyed. Um, they're, they're given over. And that word is cherem, C-H-E-R-E-M, or holy war. Okay? And I mentioned that last time. Uh, the other thing that I mentioned, too, last time is that sometimes when we read through some of these stories, there's definitely a symbolic use of war language where, like, we, we totally ruined them and deleted them. And then, like, one chapter later, here they are again. And so we've got to... You be serious about going through the biblical testimony and recognizing when people actually are destroyed and when the language is being used in such a way that suggests uh, something maybe in the you know uh, narrative that kind of helps the story, whatever else. So we got to be good. We got to be important. So, for instance, you maybe have heard before, and if you were to type in um, on Google, God wiping out nations. Well, as far as I can tell, there's not one nation in all the scripture that God wipes out. I mean, except for maybe the flood, which is like everyone, which that story itself is challenging. doesn't wipe out an entire nation. None. No nations are wiped out. In fact, uh, it's intentionally uh, portrayed in the, the Old Testament as individual cities being wiped out. And of course, you know, you have to go back and kind of study some of the idea of cities and and how cities were sort of different than and, and each other and how cities worked and how some cities were like fake cities that were just sort of like satellite cities so that, you know, if you were to go attack a city and then you attack it thinking that there's going to be, you know, something in there, all of a sudden it's sort of like, haha, we faked you and you just, you know, used all your resources and now we're going to route you and attack you and all that, okay? So not that you're interested in that, but the point is that we have a tendency to not be precise when we talk about a lot of these passages. And so when someone comes and says, oh, you know, what do you think about God wiping out the nations? And we be, immediately begin to answer that question without a recognition that that doesn't actually happen. That's nowhere. Now, you want to talk about the individual stories that are happening here. Let's talk about them. That's what we'll do today. But we've got to be, be at, least, at least I think in my mind, more precise in how we discuss some of these uh, historical events if we're going to take them seriously. Do you agree? Yeah? Maybe? Sure? Rather than just jumping on the defensive? And one of the things I mentioned last time, which I'm in no way attempting to do, is try to defend God. Because, you know, that's not my job to you. I'm not going to get up here and try to defend God. If you're intentionally pursuing a relationship with God, you're going to have to answer these questions with Him on your own. I can't teach those to you. Uh, Probably five years, maybe four years back, um, George Yancey, 
the sociology professor here that many of you don't like, <laughs> um, taught a really cool class, I thought, for our ministry on um, how to answer atheistic um, uh, claims and or questions on the problem of pain and suffering. And I thought one of the most wonderful things he taught us was the difference between theoretical and theological questions. I think I shared this the other night at one of the school of ministry classes. And personal questions. That sometimes when people are asking these difficult questions, you've got to determine, and I'm sure this is probably not such a neat distinction, there's a lot of overlap. The difference between people asking a question that is primarily in their mind theoretical, and they're just sort of you know interested in it, and the difference between people who have actually personally experienced something, that they connect with this event, that for them is traumatic. And I have a story that I won't share because it's just so sad, but you know, um, that's a big deal. You've got to know the difference when people are asking uh, about these things or when you yourself are thinking about them. Are you just thinking about this, sort of playing around with it as an idea? Because I, I will guarantee you that if you answer someone who's really struggling this from a personal perspective with a theoretical idea, you will do more damage to them than had you just sh- shut up and, and not spoken at all. <laughs> I guarantee you, Okay. Uh, it's not in this case better to do something than it is to do nothing. And so it's the same when we're talking about these kinds of issues, of trying to figure out, are these really personal issues, or are we trying to answer these in ways that theoretically make sense? And my goal is not to answer these. In fact, I'm going to go through in a moment of a lot of unsatisfying justifications of, of these killings. Things that have been theoretically offered as a defense for what God has done. And I'm going to tell you, I don't think any of them are really that helpful and good. I mean, there's pieces of them that are certainly true and helpful, but I think the majority of them, if we focus on them, fall short of any reasonable explanation that we can have. When it comes down to it, we've got to come back to the idea of what does this say ultimately about God's character? And does this fit in to uh, what I know about God from a lot of these other sources that I have, which I think is why these stories have been told, is so that we can really... Uh, grapple with this issue of God's character. Okay? So enough about that. Um, I also mentioned last time that a lot of these passages are uh, contextualized by this law court thing. Like, you know, you have a defense, uh, you have a plaintiff, you have witnesses, you have a judge, God being the judge, and they're portrayed in very much a way that God's not just arbitrarily acting out of impulse or inconvenience, but more making a series of judgments based on the evidence ahead of him, or before him. And I think what's particularly interesting in a lot of these stories is that the, the role that the defense uh, lawyer, who's usually the man of God, is playing with God himself. I think that's the point of most of these stories. It's not possible like the story we read last week uh, in Exodus 32, where you know the golden calf pops up out of nowhere and... Uh, Moses is trying to plead with God to not destroy his people. Think about this. And I I tried to emphasize this last time, but I want to emphasize it again. Moses, the guy that pretty much tried to, you know, killed someone for killing one of his brothers, tried to even up the score, then got kicked out of the land, disappeared for 40 years. God's ready to use him to, to help and save all of Israel, and he doesn't even want to go. We move from that Moses to the Moses who's ready to give up his own life for the Israelites. Even though most of what he's gotten from them in the desert is whining and complaining. They don't have bread and they're getting bitten by snakes. Okay, I'd I'd whine about that one. 
Um, but they don't have the right meat. They don't whatever. And yet, you know, uh, Moses has gotten to this point where he's ready to sacrifice his own life. Where do you think he picked that up from? You think he got it as a result of growing old? As a result of being around the Israelites who were just so good that, you know, who wouldn't want to give up their life for him? No, he got that from his relationship with God. And so there's very much this moment in that story where you see that, that Moses, in playing the defense you know, to God the judge, God is seeing this behavior as growth. And God's not arbitrarily testing him. God does wipe out the 3,000 people who are involved. And Moses doesn't even get the say in that time. You know, it's the same thing as Abraham in the Sodom and Gomorrah story, right? One person righteous, 20 people, 30 people, whatever. Um, but you've got to understand that the point of that story, at least in part, is to recognize that Moses has taken on God's character in this moment and is ready to, to give up his own life for these people who have done nothing, nothing but complain since the beginning. And God's a little bit too late in showing up, and so they come up with a calf. And he's still ready to do it for him. That's God. Moses is playing the role of God in that story. And that's incredibly important. It tells us a lot about the character of God. Okay. Um, two more things about last week, and then we'll move on. The uh, First, Hebrew narrative. A lot of details, not a lot of commentary. Uh, one of the biggest questions that we have when we're reading the Old Testament, and one of the biggest questions you have, is, is this event, is this thing that's happening actually justified by God? Is in the passage... Do we know? Are we being told that God approves of whatever's happening? I gave you the example of the, you know, Elisha calling down those bears on those 42 boys, which, you know, it wasn't like these little tykes, you know, running around that were just like, bald head, bald head, and then bears come out, okay? This was a tribe. They were the Bethelites. They were had a lot of history in terms of trying to keep the prophets from doing their work, killing the prophets. Most likely they were out to, you know, harm Elisha. Even then, it's probably not justified, but I don't think the story even tells us that it's justified. Elisha just calls down bears, and it's like, whoa, where did that come from? Not a good idea. So a lot of times we're thinking God's approving of behavior just because the story's telling it to us, when in reality, uh, it's not being clear. The three passages that we'll read today seems pretty clear. Uh, but some have even argued that it's not, but I think we can safe to say that these were, these were God-ordained events. So we've got to be careful with, with the Hebrew narrative, Okay. And then I think the most important thing, the one that I wasn't able to go into last time, was the idea, uh, and I think this is the, our, our brothers and sisters uh, who are you know, atheist, agnostic, who have uh, brought up these important claims are often focusing on the character of God. And I think that's where we've got to meet them. Rather than trying to defend and come up with our silly theories that make it, you know, us feel comfortable and make them roll their eyes, We've got to meet them in the ability to recognize that, yes, these issues are often about the character of God. They really are. And we agree with you that they're about the character of God. And one way we do that, I think, is by going back to and understanding the author's intent and what they're writing. Uh, We've had in literary criticism a refocusing of author's intent in terms of trying to interpret a lot of these, these old passages. And I think that's really good. Because in the old way of the historical critical approach where we go through and just try to find what details are accurate and what details aren't, we often, we often think about the authors as sort of these like stupid people that are just sort of writing about stuff they don't understand. Or worse, in the postmodern approach where we just go and kind of interpret whatever we want that fits whatever we want to believe, neither approach has done us much justice in the last hundred years. What we've got to come back to, I think, 
to really be fair to the people writing this stuff is we've got to figure out what was their intent in doing this. We might not agree with it. We might not like them. But we do have to at least understand what their intent is because that can help us outline what it is we can drop from this and what it is we can't. And if you've done no biblical study or no understanding of Scripture up to this point, just remember this. Author's intent is a great place to start. Try to figure out what these authors and what these readers were reading initially. One of the real interesting things we're going to come to in these first two passages is we have pretty much no historical account of the Amorites outside of the biblical account. They could have completely just not said anything about the Amorites and no one would have been upset about it because no one else writes about them. There's this vague Sumerian text that seems to talk about the, the Amorites as these absolute barbarians, almost compares them to like, you know, monkeys. They're not even human. One text, that's all we've got outside of the biblical testimony about the Amorites, which seem like the group that's most um, initiates God's fury in, in the uh, you know, in, uh, beginning story of the Old Testament. We just don't, we don't know. So why the heck are the authors including these stories about the Amorites when all the stories seem to be negative and paint God in a really bad way, are they doing that unless they think they're establishing um, a motive for God's anger and giving us a teaching opportunity to see God's anger in action and to see his, the character behind his anger? Um, I, I'm just suggesting to you that we've got to go back to the author's intent when we're reading some of these things. We have to come back to the perspective of, hey, what, are, what, what were they going for? We might not again agree with what they're going for, but if we believe the Bible is inspired, then we believe that God was inspiring them, them uh, to give these messages to us. Does that make sense, kind of? Or have I lost you all in interpretive nonsense that's not important, not fun? Some of you won't even look at me and make eye contact with me, so that means yes. Uh, okay, great. So that's what we need to know from last time. If you want a list of those weird passages, the weird war passages... I'll give you them. There's like 10 or 11 or 12 of them. But my concern today is more with these three passages uh, that talk about and specifically mention. That's what's so weird about it. Oftentimes, uh, it's assumed or, or the text mentions that only men were killed in these, these uh, uh, times of war. And a lot of times, this was provoked, right? It was provoked. We're going to see in the second story here that this killing of the 60 cities or destroying of the 60 cities was provoked. Um, but these three stories in particular mention women, men, and children. Everybody gone. Sometimes even livestock. It just makes you wonder, like, why? But it is important that they're specifically mentioned. Um, okay. So, the first two stories are about the Amorites. The, set, the third story is about the Amalekites. These are rough references to Canaanite people, Okay. Again, we, we have more information about the Amalekites than we do about the Amorites. Um, but what we know about the Amorites, we know pretty much from the biblical testimony. The Amalekites, we at least know a little bit uh, about them. But we don't know much outside of what the Bible tells us about these, uh, these people groups. Okay, so I want to I mention a couple unsatisfying justifications for these uh, group murders, okay? I'm going to have like eight or nine of these. I probably should have done a PowerPoint. I don't do PowerPoints because that requires me to spend more than ten minutes on my sermon. Um, and that's uh, just too much of a burden right now on me, you know, with all the things I have going on, which is nothing. Okay, so, uh, number one is that these all fall into the conquest narratives. Conquest narratives, meaning 
This stuff only happens at the beginning of when Israel is taking over the land. All right? And it's true. These, these stories only really happen at the beginning. The beginning of, of Israel establishing themselves. And, uh, but I think what's, what's really troubling to me about this justification is God seems to be pretty arbitrary in who, does, who has to go and who doesn't. There are some cities that, that get to remain, some cities that are decimated. Okay? And, 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 and this is during the conquest period. So why some and not others? Uh, sometimes it's suggested in the text that it has to do with the opposition. That when the Israelites, so in the second text in particular, Numbers 21 and Deuteronomy 3, the kings of Og and Sion, uh, initially, God tells the Israelites to ask them to pass through their land. And what's interesting here, and this is, by the way, another, I think, uh, unsatisfying justification, is the land is originally God's, right? God has given the land to Abram, and even though Abram has gone off and done his deal and the people have moved, now other people have come in. I mean, what were those people like supposed to leave the land empty? Were there like signs everywhere that said this was God's land? I mean, I don't know, maybe. But I mean, who blames them for coming in and occupying the land? This, this justification of it being God's land, maybe it's because I'm not a, you know, uh, original Jew and so I don't understand the importance of the promised land. But to justify these mass killings as if these people just are in the wrong place at the wrong time doesn't seem like a very good argument to me. But for whatever reason, initially, uh, God tells the Israelites to tell him, hey, let us pass through your land. The people decide, no, no, you're not going to be able to pass through here. In fact, we're just going to come kill you instead. And so that, that leads to a very bad situation for the, the Amorites, who like lose 60 of their cities. Now, remember, again, what do we know about number estimates? And now 60 is at least not that hard, but what do we know about numbers in the Old Testament? Or at least what, do we, what can we say generally about numbers in the Old Testament? They're estimates, right? Just like we estimate things, they're estimates. It's not like someone went around to each of the 60 cities. Okay, ruins, 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 ruins. I mean, a lot of these numbers are sometimes exaggerated and or symbolic, and we do have to be careful about that. We do the same thing today. This is not a crazy excuse. We do the exact same thing today when we do our own estimates. Sometimes it's beyond our ability to estimate accurately uh, you know, what's gone on. Now, that's not to downplay the significance of what's happened, but it is to say that sometimes we have to be careful about numbers. So, these people wouldn't let them pass through the land, and, uh, you know, and that's what happened to them. Again, this God's land thing, is, it's also wrapped up in the idea, and here's another justification, is that the people are going to be a bad influence on, him, on them, right? You've heard that argument before, well, people will be a bad influence. Guys, the vast majority of tribes in Canaan influence the Israelites. In fact... Hebrew religion, I mean, Judaism couldn't have even begun if it wasn't for Canaan religion. So much of what you read in the Old Testament is pulling from or comparing against or reacting to Canaanite religion, ancient Near East religions. For those of you who don't know that and are uncomfortable with that, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to get comfortable with it. God didn't just pop out of nowhere and then all of a sudden you know Judaism became a thing and it was so so completely and vastly different than anything that had come before it no it had been brought up from a lot of the Canaanite religions around a lot of people are uncomfortable with this idea in fall we're going to talk through some of uh, this issue as it pertains to modern life today what's our big issue can God work through other religions 
This whole idea of, you know, Christianity has to hear Christianity, has to accept Christianity, or is it possible for God to work through, and has he worked through other religions? We're going to address that. We're going to read an additional textbook from, not textbook, book. Uh, we're not reading textbooks, sorry. Um, thinking class here, I'm getting ready for next week, uh, two weeks from now. So we're going to read a book in addition to the one about the different world religions on different perspectives on how God can interact with other religions. Some people say absolutely not. Some people, and, and that's fine, I think, in terms of the way that they've come to that conclusion. Some people say absolutely, yeah, sure. Uh, and there's this whole inclusivism, exclusivism argument, and blah, blah, blah. And if you're interested in that, we'll get into it. But what's important for this is to recognize that certainly God didn't want negative influence on Israel. But it had already happened. I mean, God chose Abram out of all people who was, you know, ancient Near East in all of his beliefs and thoughts at that point and then at that time. And so to say somehow that certain people were going to have more of a negative influence than others is possible. And certain, certainly some of these cities that were destroyed might have had a, worse customs than some of the other cities. And so they needed to just like be wiped off. But to say that overall it was an influence thing is really to miss the fact that the Israelites were plenty influenced by the cultures around them. In fact, that was the big issue with the Israelites, right? That led to both of their exiles. Is that they couldn't remember that God was the only God. And finally, after being exiled from their land twice, they finally seemed to get it. And then they went to the other end of the extreme where you know, God was not only the only God, but he was like this mean God that had all these rules and everything else. Um, but the Israelites, again, are just, uh, I think, a symbol of our own hearts and our minds uh, and how we interact as people with God. So, influence, uh, conquest, God's land, I'm not for sure any of those completely, uh, you know, make sense. Another one is that the people were just sort of like terrible. They were just really bad people, which is related to this, right? Again, the problem is we don't know that. Maybe some of you have heard like, oh, well, you know, these Amorites, they sacrificed their children. <laughs> Okay, well, <laughs> it's weird that we're going to pay them by, you know, for sacrificing their children by killing their children. Like, I don't, that doesn't really mesh well with me. Not only that, but we don't know that. We have, at other times, other people group being described as sacrificing their kids and then going unpunished. So the idea that this was just a particularly bad group of people, these Amorites and then this Amalekite city... Again, I'm not so sure that completely resonates uh, or makes sense if you think about it into its logical conclusion. Could they have been? Sure. But does the text support that idea? Probably not. Um, We can jump to that conclusion, but there's nothing there that tells us that these people were terrible. The Sumerians called them barbarians. The Sumerians called pretty much everyone barbarians. I mean, compared to them, they were like the America of the day. You know, everyone was sort of like a barbarian beast compared to their wisdom. So... You know, we just don't know. Uh, it sometimes seems to me people are making the same argument today. You know, after Hurricane Katrina, some of the, I think, well-meaning Christians and some other not well-meaning Christians talked about that being God's wrath on New Orleans, as if New Orleans was a bad city. And I don't think it was any coincidence that New Orleans is primarily black and that we've always, you know, had a problem with black people in our society when it comes to thinking of them as more violent or mean or whatever else. Well, it was a real issue to me when people started talking about New Orleans as being a city that, you know, yeah, they have a high homicide rate, but they also have terrible poverty. And, you know, this idea that New Orleans is this terrible city. I love New Orleans. The food is great. The culture is great. I mean, yeah, okay, the voodoo stuff, you know, but we've got that all built into our own religion, you know, in terms of paganism. And, you know, people want to point to Bourbon Street as, you know, an example of how New Orleans is terrible. Bourbon Street isn't occupied by the locals. 
It's a bunch of Dallas people going and getting drunk and ruining the city and then coming back up here. And then saying, oh yeah, I went to New Orleans. It was great. And I went to Bourbon Street. It's like the worst part of New Orleans. So I had a real big problem with that. And I think sometimes that's kind of like the same argument people are making now is that certain cities are worse than others. And there's a whole lot of really underlying prejudices under uh, you know, what they're ultimately saying about them being bad people. The scripture just does not justify that. And so you're not going to be able to rest on that. Um, and I'm going to ask you a question later that's going to call our own sin into light. Okay, uh, tribal wars early on. Here's another justification. Oh, well, tribal wars, you know, this is just what they would do. You know, they would wipe each other out. And in some cities, they would have this rule that if you killed all the men, then the women would have to arm themselves and go out and kill, you know, take revenge. And so God was just sort of like, you know, in this very, like, pragmatic, God's like, okay, well, I'm going to have to kill these women in, like, you know, a few years, or they're going to have to be killed by my army, so I might as well just kill them all. It's this very pragmatic argument that I, I really have a tough time with God making uh, and, and thinking through. So tribal wars, kin revenge, and the idea that, you know, again, if your husband dies, you've got to now go out and, you know, kill the Israelites, and so it's a certain death, so they would have died anyway. Um, so many problems with that in my mind. But, again, you read this and, and you're, this is the kind of stuff you'll see Christians talking about. Um, and again, are there points of truth to some of this that help us understand the situation? Sure. Are they completely missing the point of the narrative? Absolutely. I believe these narratives are perfect opportunity for us to understand God's righteous anger. And to understand it in line with the character of who He is. I made a statement last time that some of you are really uncomfortable with and you've asked me about it and I don't know how else to better explain it and, and maybe I am the... I certainly am rebellious so it could just be my rebellion speaking but the idea that God can't just do anything He wants to do. I mean, can He theoretically? Sure. Does He have scope of authority meaning that He could do whatever He wants to do? Yes. But when it comes to using His authority He uses it in a predictable and certain way that it is in accordance with his good character. If God didn't do that, he wouldn't be a good God. And this argument that, that Christians make that, well, anything God does is good, no. That is an ancient argument that, that could justify bad gods doing all kinds of bad things to people. The, the scripture does not justify that claim that God can act however he wants and whatever he does is good. God in Jesus tells us who His character is. He intentionally shows us who He is and what He does. And that has confines. And those confines are set by Him to show us that He is good in nature. And so I think what's happening again here is we're making a theoretical argument that kind of makes sense. And we're not challenging God. What we're saying is ultimately if God can truly do whatever He wants and has no standard then he is really, we've got to decide then if he's really a good God. But he's telling us, particularly through Jesus, this is my nature. This is who I am. And maybe the, the problem is that uh, this sermon isn't about that. And so trying to explain that theologically in a short statement is like way too hard. But I'm really trying to encourage you to recognize from these scriptures that God has a character and he acts in consistency with that character. And it's that character that makes God good. And we can rely on it. And we can say that it's good. Even when it doesn't fit into our definition of good. 
but it's something that is consistent and reliable and that we can really determine and know. And I believe it's the starting place and the ending place with anybody who's not a Christian. You know, I mean, how can you start possibly with the idea that, well, you know, God does whatever He wants to do? No, we start with the idea of look at the God who we serve and how He's shown us to be who He is and the character that He has. That's the meeting place. That's the draw. And as we get to know Him and as we trust Him and as we test Him, then yes, we have more ability to trust that what He's doing, even when we don't know, is still good because we know He's a good God. But it doesn't rest on the fact that He's got authority to do anything. It rests on our understanding that our God acts in consistency uh, with the goodness that He's explained and shown to us. A goodness that we can relate to and understand. And I'll mention a couple of these in just a moment. Okay, one of the big arguments that I've heard a lot of this argument is God's just saving the children. (laughs) Okay, no, no, no. Well, you know, He wipes out a whole nation, but He's just saving those kids because those kids would have grown up and they'd have been bad people. All right, well, uh, so why now? That's a good question. Does that seem fair? That's a good question. Um, No, I mean, this this is crazy. Why doesn't God do this to everybody? Uh, Because that would be just like end all problems. We could just all die when we're kids and uh, somehow go to heaven and then we've got a perfect issue. No, 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 no. Um, Now, I think in the sense of, you know, saving them from something, okay. But in the idea that, uh, you know, uh, the whole point of this all, this whole deal is that you know these kids are all of them going to end up corrupt and bad. I think we've got some real issues with uh, with that as the only theory we'll take from that. Okay, then the last one that I'll mention is the one that the church fathers took, and that's that all of this stuff is just symbolic. Don't believe any of it's actually happening. Um, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, all of the conquest uh, stories didn't happen. This is the Israelites just sort of making explanation for why certain things exist. So the Amorites don't exist at the time of this writing. Their cities have been destroyed. So Israel, in its way of wanting to try to kind of prove to the nations that it was like a bad dude, uh, was like, yeah, we destroyed all of them. God did this. And so they're attributing things to God that, that God actually didn't do. Uh, the church fathers were big on this. They believed that these things just didn't happen. It, didn't, it wasn't in accordance with God's character. And, his, and, and that's where, by the way, that argument gets bad is when we decide God's character is supposed to be like our definition of good. Um, but they just believed none of it really happened. You know, all the conquest, all that language is just didn't happen. Just didn't. And this is just an explanation for why. Uh, and, and, and I think what goes... What sort of works with their argument is that often in the, the absence of evidence to explain why things are currently the way they are, the Hebrew narrative often goes back and attributes things to being God-ordained. God did that, right? So we look back at like the, the, the uh, creative, uh, creation narrative, and we see there's some things that God did that maybe he didn't do the way that they're describing it, but this is their explanation for how God does what's been done. Does that make sense? Maybe? No? Some of you are like, what? How do I write that? Uh, yeah. This is their argument. Didn't happen. Never happened. But the problem with that is this isn't exactly like the creation narrative. It doesn't seem symbolic. It's, you read it and it says, I want you to treat these people like you treated this other people that you completely wiped out. Like, so it just seems verbatim from him. And so I have a tough time believing these stories just aren't true, even when that would be a super convenient argument to make. 
So I want to suggest to you that a lot of those arguments have bits of truth, but they're arguments that Christians ultimately rely on so as not to have to talk about the character of God. They jump to a conclusion or a defense of God that's first about making them okay with God's behavior. But when you don't take the presupposition that God is good, that kind of stuff is going to roll off your back. So it might work in the middle of the night for a Christian who's dealing with doubts. But for a lot of people who aren't, a lot of those justifications just aren't going to work very well. Or at least not for a long time. And I think what these stories often have to do for us is they have to bring us back to, and I'll say this a thousand times so that hopefully you can remember it, is do we have an ability to teach about God's character from these stories or not? Can we draw these in line with the consistency of, the, of His character that we see throughout the rest of the Scripture or not? If we can't, then, then there's something wrong with our ability to understand what's going on here. Uh, not, not a problem with God's behavior or God's actions, so long as we do believe and trust in His character. So let me ask you a couple questions that I think are good questions along these lines. How are we any less corrupt than that specific city? You know, I mean, how, how does God define corruption? And, and how are we as a people? I mean, I know we tend to think of ourselves as being so much better than a lot of other people. Uh, but, you know, how, how do we decide that? How are we any less corrupt? Denton, how are we any less corrupt than the city that is explained in the Amorites? I, I don't know. I mean, we like to tend to think that we don't sacrifice babies. Well, uh, <laughs> the rest of the third world sees us as sacrificing lots of babies all the time. I talk with my classes about female genital mutilation, which is weird, I know, and some of you are hearing it maybe for the first time, and we talk about how it's such a terrible thing, you know, to do, and then, you know, I try to kind of turn it back on them, they're like, okay, so let's use this same mentality that you think, you know, pleasure is an important part of sex and all this other stuff, and then see it from their perspective, what you're doing to unborn children as a society. And now try to understand. And I'm not making a judgment about abortion or even general mutilation. I'm just simply saying, can you see how from their perspective what you're doing is far more extreme than what they're doing? And it comes down to this sort of like morality is based at least in part in our culture and how we think about the world. In their case, survival versus self-expression. Expression values versus you know, survival values and reproduction and things like that. So how are we any less corrupt than, than any of these specific cities? You know? Um, we don't have a test. We can't just uh, look at these cities and think, well, we're better so that we don't deserve this kind of total annihilation. If God were to see our city and all of its sin, would we also deserve total annihilation? Uh, I mean, yeah, the scriptural testimony is yes. <laughs> Absolutely. So why is it that we don't get what we deserve uh, in that sense? Uh, how fair is group punishment? I mean, was it, was it a Sodom and Gomorrah situation where like literally could they never not find like one or five righteous people? That's the only thing that I can think in terms of comparing our city to their city is that, you know, maybe their cities were like completely corrupt. But I mean, I just have such a tough time understanding that as a possibility in my mind, you know, unless it's. We're talking about it in figurative ways, that we've all sinned, and, and I think these are really uh, tough questions. 
Um, did he sort of allow this stuff to happen? Meaning that it was sort of like not ideal, but he allowed it to happen? Or did he really command these things to happen, which is what it seems like the text says? And does God still work like this? Has something changed ultimately about the way he works uh, in these situations? I mean, certainly even he doesn't work like that the rest of the Old Testament uh, in terms of wiping out whole cities. He really only does do that at the beginning of the conquest area. And so maybe that's different. But how do we grapple with some of these questions of God allowing certain things to happen versus commanding certain things to happen that seem really awful and terrible? And of course, I think one of the big questions is how can we reconcile Jesus with this? How do we go from God wiping out these cities at the beginning of the conquest, uh, you know, um, stories, to Jesus turning the other cheek? Not, you know, letting your enemies persecute you. I mean, guys, if we're not asking these questions, we're asking the wrong questions, I think. How do we go from this to that? That's the question a lot of people are asking. And a lot of wrong theology has come out as a result of answering those questions really incorrectly. We've got two different gods, we've got God's changed his mind, and all these other things. But I firmly believe that this is the exact same God we see in Jesus, and he's acting in the same way in accordance with his character as Jesus did. No different. Absolutely no different. And, and this whole idea of different time and different period only explains it in part. <laughs> So, let me give you just sort of a couple closing encouraging thoughts, because I know some of you are maybe discouraged now. Um, I don't know what I've done, you know. Opened up some wounds, you know. But I think it's better that we ask these right questions than that we just get along with our, you know, silly, pulled-together theories about how this stuff works. That at least we can sit across with someone who's grappling with the same thing honestly, and you say, yeah, I'm dealing with that too. I'm still in the place in my relationship with God where I don't quite understand his anger. It doesn't seem to be really in line with how I think about anger and how I think it should interact. We do this with each other, guys, all the time, trying to understand each other. Think about how many of our conversations with uh, you know, our friends are about gray area stuff. It's trying to figure out, were you right doing that? Were you wrong doing that? Was I right doing that? Was I wrong doing that? I mean, that's like marriage. It's, I think it's great because... You figure out at some point it's not so much about right and wrong as much as it is about, you know, adapting to people and learning how to really understand. Well, with God, he's not adapting to us in that same sense. We're getting to understand and know his character and we're growing in our understanding of that. But I would definitely say his anger is something that uh, isn't immediately understandable or apparent to us. But I want to make a few observations. Number one, I want to look at who in Scripture is uh, elevated as leaders... And who's kind of chided as leaders? Let's look at you know Job, Moses, and Abraham. All who counter God and plead with God to not be so angry. And then Jonah, who's like, yeah, God, be angry. Yeah, I like that. Wipe out this people because they deserve it. Guys, again... What do you think that tells us? Do you think Abram and, you know, Moses and and Jonah, they just sort of were good men? They had good character? No, it's describing that the the kind of men and women who God, uh, you know, interacts with are the kinds of people who plead for the unrighteous to be saved. That's his character in them. 
And I don't think God is playing the, you know, let's trick them and see what happens. Again, God carries through with these punishments more often than not. But he's, he, he, his men, the guys that he trusts in, are the guys that plead for their cases. And God allows them to plead. Question him. And he, he responds directly. I mean, not only does that say that God, you know, it does that in people, but he's very willing for his people to care for and plead for, even if it's down to one good person left. In the case of Abram and, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the kind of God we serve. Pleading for sinful people. People who have even been, uh, you know, have harmed them directly. Right? They're pleading for them. That's the kind of God we serve. I was thinking about this in the context of my own anger, which I realized over the last probably year and a half that I have my own issues with anger. I don't know... (laughs) For some reason, for a long time, I just decided I was pretty good with anger. I didn't have any anger problems. I don't know where you decide that along the way, but that's just how my brain works. And I was like, yeah, I'm probably pretty good with that. But the last year and a half, I've really, really been focusing on, I have some anger issues, some just sort of deep-seated anger issues. And they seem so insignificant. And so one of the things I wanted to do is just sort of compare how I see God acting in His anger here and compare it to my own anger, and I came up with three things. And this is what I would encourage you to do this next week. Take one of these passages, try to understand it, make sense of it, but try to understand God's anger, particularly compared to your anger. Because I think we're most able to understand God's character in these situations when we're most able to understand exactly what He was dealing with and, uh, and what was at stake. And how we would respond... If we were in a similar situation. And often these stories are communicating God's character through the men that he's working through. Which I think is incredibly important and I think we miss that often. And it almost comes out as the the dudes are like the good characters, the heroes, and God's like the bad character. That should say something about God's character itself, but uh, we don't have time. Number one, my anger is super fickle and moody. Like, just... Some days I'm angry, you know? Some days I'm not angry. Some moments I'm angry. And I'm sure if I like unpacked why I was angry, I could probably come up with something. Sometimes I'm just convinced I'm angry for no reason. Um, I'm just angry. I don't even know. Maybe I don't know what it is. God's anger in these situations was often very intentional. And it build. It built. It builds. There we go. It builds. Like a judge who gives the due punishment... Each time it builds, builds, builds. Forgiveness, 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 but it builds. And I would say it builds appropriately. Not it balloons like my anger often does for no reason, right? So many of the times I look back on my anger and I think, oh my gosh, what was I doing? So stupid. My anger is often about uh, something that's had a deep impact on me. And I get most angry about things that impact me directly versus angry about injustices that happen in our world. I mean, we're inundated with so much information on injustice in and around us. And sometimes what's going on in our life is injustice, but still often pales in comparison to the, the degree of injustice that happens in our society. But my anger is often based on how it impacts me. God's anger is often about injustice and it's often about protecting people and not allowing the sin of a few to impact an entire nation. 
He's protecting people. In the situation with the calf, God doesn't tear, tear everyone apart. He does a little weird test, casting lots, which, I, again, if you're like, don't understand the story and understand that the reason behind it seems so arbitrary, like God just needs 3,000 people to die, but it, it, it zeroes in on those people responsible for the incident. And he's going to nip it at the bud, and he's going to nip it really early on so that he can protect the rest of the people from the kinds of problems that are going to come as a result of idolatry. Idolatry. Uh, the last thing I, I, I will say is my anger is often about getting even or even getting ahead. If I can just get even with someone, I see this a lot when it comes to driving. If I can just punish them to where I'm even, we're even now, right? He's cut me off once, I've cut him off once, we're even, okay? But it, that stuff balloons. I mean, you get, you get really uh, you know, uh, upset and the thing gets worse and worse. But you see constantly in God's anger a long-term concern for justice. A concern that not only uh, extends to his people, the Israelites, but to the all nations. This, this sort of long-term approach to trying to figure out how justice is going to be done in and around the areas. So I'll challenge you this next week, if this is a particular issue that you really want to approach God in, uh, great, go for it. I think the thing that's so neat about the testimony we have of men and women of God in the scripture is that God wants us to approach him in, in with these difficult topics. You might get a Job answer, but you know you also might get a Moses answer. I mean, you know, I don't know. I don't know what dictates that, to be honest. Um, but God wants us to approach us. He's building us into people who care enough about people that we would do what Paul and Moses, maybe in a moment of rash decision, claimed to do. And that's, you know, die on the part of all these sinful people. That's the kind of God we serve because he did that for us. And that's what's really important with a lot of these stories, is that we take that and apply it in our own lives. To become those kinds of people. To allow our anger to be guided by the character of God and his own anger. But that takes a lot of trust and it takes a lot of... Uh, of kind of looking through this stuff and making sense of it. Um, I'm going to say a prayer and then we're just going to take communion. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.